Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, good evening. Haksameach. Welcome to our air of Yom Kippur service. In keeping with Yom Kippur's theme of repentance and atonement, I want us to go back to the very beginning of the Bible tonight and look at our sin nature. So turn with me on the overhead here to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. If you can get that slide up, there we go. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit, the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Let me stop right there. As we contemplate our past year, this era of Yom Kippur, we must admit, if we're honest, that human beings, including each one of us, do a lot of bad things, even evil things. And the question is, why? Well, if you ask a sociologist, the sociologists say if you oppress people, they'll respond with violence. So violent, bad things happen if you oppress people. Unjust social social conditions cause evil and violence. Okay, but then what made the oppressors oppressive in the first place? If they weren't oppressed, and typically they never have been. So what made them bad? Well, ask a psychologist. The psychologists say, well, if you neglect someone, if you abandon them, if you abuse them, if you don't give them love, they can end up doing horrific things. Yes, but it's also true that a lot of people who do horrific things uh, have not had that kind of background. So on the overhead, what if these social conditions don't create evil in us, but simply magnify what's already there within us? In 1961, Adolf Eichmann, who had been the head SS officer in the Nazi German army, who had mastermind, uh, he was the mastermind behind the final solution, uh, the Jewish Holocaust. He was the creator of the death camps. He was captured in 1961. He was put on trial in Jerusalem, and it was televised. And the Jewish man named Yechiel Denur, who had been a death camp survivor at Auschwitz, he was brought in to testify. And when he saw Eichmann in the defendant's box, he collapsed. Very dramatically, he collapsed, sobbing and fainting. 22 years later, 1983, 
Mike Wallace interviewed him on the famous TV show 60 Minutes. Mike Wallace showed Yechiel Denor a clip of himself collapsing and said, you were overcome. What were you overcome with? What was going on in your mind? Were you overcome with hate for this awful person? Uh, were you overcome with fear before your former captor? Uh, what did you feel? And Mike Wallace was startled. And anyone, anyone who's ever seen this clip was startled when Yahil Dunur said, Oh, no, 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 no. It was not hate. It was not fear. When I came in and I saw Eichmann, I suddenly realized this is not a demon. This is not a Superman. This is an ordinary man like me. And if he's capable of this, I'm capable of this. Here's what he actually said on the overhead uh, to Mike Wallace. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. He collapsed because he was facing himself. Now the Bible says that's absolutely right. So here's my question to you on this era of Yom Kippur when the books of God, God's books are open in heaven. Have you ever faced yourself? Have you faced yourself? Do you know what's in your heart? Do you have any idea what's down there? If you grasp the biblical doctrine of sin, you'll be able to do all these things. And so, of all the places you can go to look at what the Bible says about sin, the most famous, the most fundamental, the most foundational is the great story of the serpent, uh, the representation of Satan who came into the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve, as we just read in Genesis 3. This is the backstory of what's wrong with the human race. And when you look at this story tonight, we're going to see, uh, on the overhead, we're going to see four things. We're going to see uh, the roots of sin, uh, the essence of sin, the result of sin, and the solution for sin. So first, the root of sin. Look at Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Remember in Genesis 2.17, God said to the first human beings, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. But now the serpent comes in, Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, you won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you become like God, knowing good and evil. So in the overhead... Here's the serpent's message. If you obey God, he'll keep you down. If you submit to God, you won't be happy. You'll be miserable. He'll hold you back. Uh, He'll keep you from the things that you want and that you need. If you eat from this tree, you'll be better, not worse. Your eyes will be opened. Your horizons will be expanded. You'll be moving towards all that you can be. Now what is the serpent doing here? What's his strategy? Note that he's not targeting belief in the existence of God. No. He's not trying to destroy the belief in the existence of God. In fact, even to this day, the majority of people believe in God. Instead, what does he target? If you want to understand what he's after, what he's targeting, what he wants to destroy, you have to go back to the original command. In the very beginning, God said to Adam, what? Genesis 2, 16, he said, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people say, that's paradise. Only one command. (laughs) Only one command. God puts you in paradise. He says, I've only got one command, not two, not ten commandments. 
Just one command. Don't eat from that tree. And yet notice, he doesn't say why. He says you'll die, but he doesn't say why this particular command. He doesn't, he doesn't say why it's bad, or why it's wrong. You know, was it because you know, the fruit from this tree had a lot of carbs and it was fattening? <laughs> I doubt it. The point is, he doesn't say why. He doesn't say, if you eat from this tree, it'll bring evil into the world, it'll destroy the human race, and all the rest of human history will be misery and heartache. No, God doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them why. So if you say to someone, don't do this, but you don't tell them or explain to them why, this is what God is saying on the overhead. He's saying, I'm not going to tell you why. Because if you would obey me, because you see it's good for you, then you really wouldn't be obeying me. That wouldn't be obedience. There would just be your own self-interested compliance. You would just be doing what it looked like would benefit you on the overhead. But instead the Lord's saying, don't do this. I'm not telling you why. And therefore, here's what I'm asking. Don't do this. Why? Just because you love me. Just because you trust me. Just because you trust that I love you. Don't do this just for me, your Lord God. Not for you. Not for any cost-benefit analysis. Just do it for me. Just do it because you love me and you trust that I love you. And that's what Satan is after. That's what he's after. He's trying to destroy your trust in God. He's trying to say, God's not looking out for your benefit. He's not looking out for your best. If you obey him, he's just going to hold you down. This is character assassination. This is what the devil is after. On the overhead, Satan is saying, you can't trust God. You can't trust the love of God. You're on your own in this world. You've got to therefore take your life in your own hands. If you obey him, you'll never be happy. That's the lie of Satan. The lie that is passed into every single human heart, including yours and yours and mine. Whether you believe in God or not tonight, that lie has been implanted in your heart. Whether you're religious or irreligious, that lie is in your heart. Whether you're moral or immoral, it's in your heart. The lie of the serpent has passed into your heart and it has distorted and continues to distort your life. Now to get at this, imagine a father with a little boy. And imagine it's, it's Hanukkah time. And the father takes the little boy to a toy superstore. And they walk through and he says to his son, Do you see that toy over there? Would you like that? Oh yes, daddy, I would love that. You see those over there? Oh yeah, would you like some of those? Oh, I would love some of those, daddy. And they go through the whole store like this. And finally they get to the end of the store. And the father turns around and he says, Son, I want to tell you why I brought you here. I want you to know you're not going to get any of these. You'll have none of it. I am never going to let you have any of these things. Now, let's go home. And the lie of Satan, which many of you believe, is that that is what God is like. And until you see that proclivity, you will not understand your own heart and why you act the way you do. As a well-known psychologist, Eric Erickson, he wrote a famous book called uh, 
childhood and society. In the book, he says, if a child in his or, his or her earliest days doesn't learn to trust the main adults, the main dominant adults in their life, so for example, you don't trust your father, or you don't trust your mother because you've been abandoned or abused or neglected, if the child doesn't learn to trust in a very, very beginning of his or her life, they will have all these pathologies, all these dysfunctions for the rest of their life. Now at the beginning of the human race, that's exactly what happened to us. And because you and I really don't trust God, we don't trust his goodwill, we don't trust his love, we really don't believe that if we totally give ourselves to him completely, that he would love us, that he would give us what we need. And because you don't trust his love, many of you, for example, are working yourselves to death to prove to yourself and to prove to other people that you're valuable. And do you know why you're working yourself to death? Because you don't trust the love of God enough to let the love of God assure you of your ultimate intrinsic value and worth. There are people out there who like to put other people down all the time. Put them down, criticize them, knocking them, uh, demonizing them, in order to bolster their own self-worth, their own self-esteem. Why? Because they don't trust the love of God enough to assure them of their own acceptance and significance. There are people exhausted with trying to make sure everything in their life goes perfectly right uh, for their family, for their children, for their health, for their finances. They want nothing to go wrong. Everything to go perfectly right. And they're eaten up with worry and anxiety. Why? Because they don't trust the Lord to give them this sense of safety. They don't trust Him. And because of this lie, that is the root of our problems. All the ways in which we become, what we behave is because we don't trust God. So on the overhead, that is the, number one, that's the root of sin. Number two, what, so what's the essence of sin? What is sin? Look at Genesis 3, 6. The woman took some of the fruit and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her. He eats it. Now there's one sense in which the essence of sin is simply disobeying God. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. There was only one law back then, right? Don't eat from the tree, fruit of this tree. They ate the fruit. They violated this one law. That's sin on the overhead. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua shows us that the impulses of our heart that lead to our behavior, our behavioral sins, those impulses of our heart are themselves sins. Because you wouldn't do the behavioral violations unless there were these impulses in your heart in the, in the first place. Lust, greed, hatred, envy, resentment that lead you to do the, the, the things you do. And so if the essence of sin is disobeying God, what's the essence of a sinful heart? What's the essence of a sinful impulse? And basically the serpent tells us. Look at Genesis 3 verse 5. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened You'd be like God, knowing good and evil. So on the overhead, the essence of sin is wanting to be in the place of God. We want God's control. We want to to center our lives on ourselves instead of letting God be the center of our life. We we want to call the shots in our own life, ourselves. Not let the Lord tell us what's right, what's wrong. We want everything in our life to revolve around our glory, our honor, our adulation, our happiness, Instead of God's glory and honor and adulation and happiness, what pleases Him? And this is also called 
self-centeredness. Instead of God-centeredness, this is self-centeredness. Martin Luther, for all his faults, had a brilliant analysis of sin. He called human nature incurvatus se, which means curved in on itself. On the overhead, in his lectures on Romans, he writes this, Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it is wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. He says, here's what is self-centeredness, which is the essence of sin. Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself, i.e. self-centered, that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. When you and I think of a self-centered person, we typically think of a a cruel person, right? And and indeed, the the worst dictators and tyrants in history were very self-centered. Egomaniacs who did horrible things. But self-centeredness, if we're honest, affects all of us. We're all guilty of it. It's pervasive. Uh, It's in every part of our life. Now, self-centeredness, yes, it can make you cruel, but can also, listen to this, can also motivate you to be really good, really moral. Uh, There's no better way to feel superior to everybody else than being really good, really moral, giving to the poor, helping people, self-sacrificing for your family. There's no better way to feel superior to others than by being good. There's no better way to control other people, to get them to feel that they owe you, to control their respect, to control their opinion, than by being good. So ask yourself, why am I being good? Why am I helping the little old lady across the street? The truth is, the default mode of the human heart is to use the little old lady to feel good about yourself. And to make sure everybody else knows it. That I'm a really good person. You're not doing it for her. You're doing it for you. So self-centeredness, it can make you either cruel or good. Moral or immoral. And in every case, you're using people. Whether you're being nice to them or nasty to them, you're using them. And it's also true that self-centeredness makes people religious. And in fact, most religion is a form of self-centeredness. So for example, if you're religious and you go to your place of worship and you obey your religion's moral laws and you read your scriptures and you you pray to your deity and you, you expect results, right? You expect God will now answer my prayers and take me to heaven. You expect results. And I've had people over the years come to me and say, Uh, David, I tried so hard to be a good messianic believer, so hard to be a good Yeshua follower, but nothing's going right in my life. I'm not getting any answer to my prayers. So what use is it to be a Yeshua follower if God just turns a deaf ear to me? Notice the language. What use is it to be a Yeshua follower? That's what's called a Freudian slip. Here's what you're doing. If you say, I'm obeying God, but I'm not getting anything out of it, Well, whatever you thought you were getting out of it is what you are really living for. And God is just a means to your end. You're using God. You're not obeying God for God's sake. Look, here's an example. When you really love someone, why do you do what pleases them? Why do you do what they want? Why do you you, you do it just to see their smile? Just to see them happy? It's a reward in itself. 
you're doing things for them because you love them. Not because you're getting anything out of it. It's their joy that's an end in itself. But because of the lie of the serpent in our heart, there's no one that ever does anything just for God in their own natural man. Because we're all tainted by what we call in Hebrew the Yetzirah, this evil inclination, our sin nature. So there has to be an enormous spiritual intervention from outside to transform us and write God's law on our hearts. Not merely on tablets of stone, but inwardly on your heart, which is how Jeremiah and Ezekiel both define the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant, on the overhead. Because otherwise, we do things for God. Why? So we can get something from Him. We use Him. We don't do things just for Him. So the one thing the Lord asks from us to love and serve and worship Him just for who He is. We've lost the ability to do that ever since the Garden of Eden. On the overhead. Selfishness now reigns in our hearts. Selfishness pervades everything. The essence of sin is putting yourself in the place of God. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. The essence of sin is trying to be your own Lord and Savior. Because you believe you're on your own. And you have to go out there and you have to do all these things... Because you can't trust God to give you your self-worth. You think you have to earn it yourself. So you're very busy trying to earn and achieve and prove your own self-worth. And if this self-centeredness is the essence of sin, using people for yourself, ironically, you can do this as much by being moral and good and religious as you can by being cruel and vicious and immoral. And that means that, as Nietzsche said, virtually everybody who's being good and religious, the people, and also the people who are being cruel and vicious and irreligious, they're all doing it for the same thing, same reason, for themselves. They're all using people. And therefore, self-centeredness is pervasive throughout all human life. And that's why we're so miserable. Because even those who do good things, out of self-centeredness, there's a self-righteousness there. There's a spiritual pride Uh, There's bigotry. uh, There's insecurity. uh, There's a feeling like, why aren't I getting the thanks and recognition that I deserve? Everyone is unhappy and critical of others and easily offended. Why? Because we are all self-centered. But if you grasp the biblical doctrine of sin, you can no longer divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys because we're all guilty. Psalm 14 Beginning in verse 1 says, There's none who done good, who do good. They've all turned aside. Together we've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And if you're in touch with the biblical doctrine of sin, you admit this. But you must be willing to face yourself and see what's in your own heart. You've got to see that everything you do, both good and bad, is basically a way for you to play God. Of running from God. Of being your own Lord and Savior. And you can do this just as much by keeping the moral rules as by breaking them. And once you see that, you'll realize that everyone is a sinner. Which is a very fitting theme for tonight, Erev Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Everyone is a sinner, including you. And especially including me. So there's lots of bad guys, but really no good guys. So you can't feel superior to anyone. 
on the overhead, uh, G.K. Chesterton says this, Yeshua faith, messianic faith, preaches an obviously unattractive idea, original sin. But when you wait for its results, the results of the belief of, in original sin are sympathy and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity. For only with the belief in original sin can you at once pity the criminal and distrust the king. Wow. So on the overhead, that is the root of sin and then the essence of sin. Let's look at number three, the results of sin. The result of sin is always the breakdown of relationships. The minute Adam and Eve sin, what happens? The first thing that happens, they're ashamed of their nakedness. And what that means is they can't stand the fact of transparency. Before they sinned, they didn't mind the other person, you know, looking in and seeing everything. But now, oh no, on the overhead, self-centeredness destroys relationships. Why? In self-centeredness, you've got to control what the other person sees. Because in self-centeredness, you're using the other person. And so you need them to think about you the way you want them to think about you. You're putting, putting together your own identity. You're not resting in God. You're putting together your own self-worth and reputation. You're trying to, to patch up your own self-righteousness with these fig leaves instead of t- relying on the Lord to be your righteousness. And so you've got to control what other people see. And so you use people. You're, you're spinning the truth to impress and persuade other people. Manipulating what everybody else sees. So self-centeredness destroys relationships with others, but it also destroys your own relationship with God. Because when God shows up, what happens? The man and the woman, they hide. Why? Because they know what they've done. Even if you're here tonight for Erev Yom Kippur, and and let's say you don't believe in God. Someone dragged you here, but you don't really believe in God. You don't believe in hell. You don't believe in sin. If you're honest, you'll admit you still have a sense of condemnation that you can't shake. There's a kind of voice within you that's convicting you, calling you an imposter, a a fraud. You're not living up even to your own standards, let alone God's standards. On the overhead, do you know what that sense of condemnation is that you can't shake? It's an awareness that you're alienated from your Creator. And you're not where you should be, especially with regard to him. Sin destroys relationships. So if sin is this exhausting, this destructive, uh, this brings us to our fourth and final point on the overhead. What's the solution to sin? And this passage here in Genesis 3 points us to the whole rest of the Bible. Genesis 3 verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Ayecha, where are you? So let's think about this. God shows up. He asks, where are you? Now, think about this. Surely he knew where they were, right? He's the creator of the universe. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows where Adam was. He knows, oh, I see you. They were hiding behind the tree. (laughs) So why is God asking him, where are you? It can't be for information. God's got the information. Do you know what he's doing? If you keep on reading in Genesis 3, you'll see there's a whole series of questions that God asks the man and the woman, and a series of answers they give. The first question is, where are you? And that what that means is, why are you hiding? Now, what should the right answer be, class? 
The right answer is, I'm hiding because I sinned. But that's not the answer Adam gives, is it? Instead, Adam says, I'm hiding because I'm ashamed. Uh, I'm naked. Uh, I'm a naked and ashamed. Look at Genesis 3, verse 10. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God says, why have you hidden from me? Does Adam say, because I sinned? No. He says, because I'm ashamed. Okay, God says, well, why are you ashamed? Look at, Genesis, look at verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, what should the answer be? Yes. <laughs> the answer should be simply yes. But that's not what Adam says. Instead, he says, the woman made me do it. <laughs> Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman who you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, then I ate it. <laughs> and the answer with the woman is, the serpent made me do it. The serpent. Look at verse 13. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, do you know what God is doing here? He is counseling them. He's the wonderful counselor. He doesn't show up in judgment and fire. He's walking in the garden. Which, by the way, implies a physical human form, if you think about it. He's not descending from heaven with fire and brimstone. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And even though he knows what's happened, he's asking them questions. What's he doing? He's counseling If a counselor sees someone all screwed up, all messed up, in denial, doesn't see the truth, doesn't take ownership for what what he's done, what does a good counselor do? The counselor does not give a lecture, do they? He doesn't say, let me tell you what a borderline personality is, and by the way, that's you. (laughs) No, you don't do that. So what does a counselor do? He asks questions to try to get the person to see the truth, to get the person out of their denial. You get the person to own their own words and actions and thoughts and motives. And here, the ultimate counselor isn't trying to judge or condemn, but to redeem. To redeem. And that's what God is doing here. The Lord comes out and he seeks you. He seeks for you. He comes out and he asks questions. The Lord comes out in love and in sympathy like a Pele awaits in Hebrew, a wonderful counselor. Now, if you only read the Bible this far, you would never imagine the lengths to which God is going to go to come after you and to seek you and to redeem you. What you have here in Genesis 3 is just a foretaste of what he does in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, our ultimate Kohen Hagadol, our great high priest, our Yom Kippur guilt and sin offering, our Yom Kippur scapegoat, where our sins were laid on him, just like in Yom Kippur, where the sins of Israel were laid upon the scapegoat. On the overhead, Yeshua shows up to reverse the curse, to reverse the work of the serpent, to restore paradise. Now, what do I mean by Reverse. This, the serpent put a lie in our hearts through a tree. And Yeshua comes to take the lie out through a tree. The serpent uses the tree to put the lie in. Yeshua uses the tree to take the lie out. The Bible talks about the first Adam and Yeshua who is the second Adam. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden was given a command about the tree. Don't eat from the tree. The second Adam, Yeshua, also in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, was also given a command about a tree, the cross. 
Yeshua was hung on a tree, the scriptures say. Yeshua also got a command about a tree. But the command was, go and die on it. The first Adam, in a sunny, beautiful garden, was told, obey me about the tree and you'll live. The second Adam, in a terrible, dark garden, was told by God, obey me about the tree and you'll be crushed to powder, crushed to dust. But it's the only way to save the race of Adam. Only if you take their punishment, that you take away their guilt, that you can take, that you can take away their shame. This is the only way. On the overhead. So the first Adam was told, obey and you'll live. And he didn't do it. The second Adam was told, obey and you'll be destroyed. And he did. Do you know why? He did it for you. And for you. And for you. And for me. Great 17th century British poet, uh, George Herbert, had this amazing poem on the crucifixion called The Sacrifice. It's a poem that imagines Yeshua is looking down from the cross, speaking to us. I'm just going to give you the first two lines uh, from this poem. Uh, go to the essence of the theme that we've been talking about. The, the solution to sin. And this is what he says. He's again, this is Yeshua speaking from the cross. All ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit. Now I must climb the tree. A tree of life for all, but only me. All ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now I'm climbing the tree, the execution stake, the cross. In the Torah, in Deuteronomy 21-23, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. Yeshua became a curse for us. He, as our young Kippur scapegoat, took upon himself the curse that was upon us for our sin. Look at Galatians 3, 13. He quotes from the, the, this Torah passage. Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The cross becomes the tree of death for Yeshua. But because he took our, our sins and died on it, now it becomes the Etzchayim, the tree of life for us, for, and for all who repent and trust in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Man stole the fruit, now I must climb the tree. A tree of life for all, but only me. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This and this alone will uproot the lie in your heart. Without this, you will continue to mistrust God, and you'll be exhausted and insecure and striving for justification and turning it into self-justification because you can't trust God's love. If you just say to yourself over and over again, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, that's an abstraction. That will never work. But this works. This tree. On this era of Yom Kippur, look at Messiah dying on the cross for you. Look at him turning the tree of death into a tree of life for you. Look at what he did for you. And that will finally get you to trust him. That is what will uproot the, the lie that's been implanted in your heart. That will stop you from trying to work for your own salvation. It'll try to get you to, it will get you to stop worrying. It'll get you to a place where you can say on the overhead, you can say with John Newton, our pleasure and our duty, though opposites before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. 
to see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. No more just outwardly obeying because of your duty. No more dealing with a God you don't trust. But now you're resting in the arms of a God you do trust. Because of what he did for you on that tree. Uh, that once and for all final Yom Kippur atonement. This is what will destroy the essence of what makes you disobey God. It will destroy the essence of your self-centeredness. The essence of your cruelty. The essence of your selfishness and immorality. On this air of Yom Kippur, embrace the gospel of Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I'd like the music team to come on up as well. Father, we thank you on this air of Yom Kippur for giving us such wonderful insight from your word into what's wrong with us, how our heart really operates. Forgive us, Lord, for believing the lie of the serpent and not trusting you. Forgive us, Lord, for, for, the, for this, take, taking in this lie into our hearts. Lord, we confess tonight that you and you alone, as our creator, you know what's best for us. That you only want our good. Help us to obey you. Not out of selfish self-interest, but just because we love you, Lord. Just because we trust you. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-centeredness, our pride, our rebellion. Thank you for Yeshua, the second Adam. By his blood shed on the tree, on the cross, you take away our heart of stone for all who repent and trust in you, Yeshua, and then who surrender our lives to you. And you give us a new heart, a heart that's soft and pliable towards you, Lord. It wants your will done in our life, not our will, but yours. Lord, on this era of Yom Kippur, help us to realize what Yeshua has done for us. Reverse the effects of the serpent in our lives as we gaze upon and behold the glory of your son, Yeshua, uh, dying for us as our Yom Kippur atonement. Satan brought death to the first Adam and his seed through the tree. But Yeshua, you are the second Adam. You bring life through another tree, to the cross. And you turn the execution stake, this tree of death, you turn it into an etzchayim, a tree of life. For all who take hold of you, Yeshua, You didn't just judge us in the Garden of Eden, but you came saying, where are you? And you found us. You found us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen.